Hi everyone, with Hyphen Magazine, as a part of Hyphen and Hollywood Special Entertainment Podcast, my name is Christian Ting, and I'm joined by a very special guest, Christopher Naoke Lee from The Terror Infamy. Christopher, good morning, and how's it going? Good morning, it's going well, man. Thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here. So great. So first of all, I just want to say congratulations on your work with The Terror Infamy on AMC. So Thank just you. in terms of the show so far, what has been, you know, the fan reaction, the friend reaction to your work and the overall content? Yeah, uh, well, thank you. Uh, first and foremost, I'm definitely, we're definitely excited to see the fan reaction. It's been positive overall. Uh, we're certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And just to have, you know, the community of Asian Americans, but also just a community of horror fans and historical context fans to sort of see what they're saying. Um, I Every now and then I'd pop up on Twitter when they're, when the live showing is going on and just to kind of see what people are excited about, what story and what twists and turns are going on. And I do think it's it's a show that does have a little bit of something for everybody where if you want to, if you want horror, you can absolutely tap into that. But mm -hmm. if you want historical drama and learn about things that you may not have known, um, it does a very great job of that as well. So I think it's, it, it's wonderful in that capacity where an audience can really dive into different elements of what's fascinating for them. And speaking again for a show that accommodates so many different perspectives, for you personally as an actor and as just someone with an interest in this background, mm -hmm. what drew you personally to the project in terms of hearing about this, right. getting on the radar? Subject matter was huge. Just the fact that it was about Japanese American internment camps, that it was about World War II. Um, it's you know a subject matter that's often overlooked in some mm -hmm. of our American history and how we teach it. I mean, I recall even in history class back in high school or middle school, and I remember Japanese-American internment camps, and there was maybe a paragraph, a paragraph maybe yeah. a page, like if you were lucky. So to have a full series that really touches on it, I think that's incredible. So that was something that really drew me to it. But not only to mention, I mean, it's the players. I, I think the people involved were a huge sell for me. I mean, Alex Wu, who comes off of True Blood, and mm -hmm. Max Borenstein, who came off of Kong Skull Island. Really, Scott's producing this, you know, with his team, and I've worked with them before, and it's with AMC. So it's like, it's what's not to love about that that core team right there? So that those are really, really big things for me for coming on. When you were in the process of, of sort of auditioning, what were some of the, the values that you were looking for as an actor, mm -hmm. given the role that you were going for, the role that you eventually acquired with Ken, or some of the elements that like, drew to you? And the, there's, the funny thing about Ken is he, I, man, I love Ken. Mm -hmm. I, I love Ken so much. And his character, his drive, his, a lot of that stuff that we built together from myself and with the writers, um, it's a, it's a type of character that I absolutely love. I'm a bit of an activist myself in some ways, so I think that really drew me in for someone who was outspoken, someone who wasn't afraid to speak up for what he believed in, um, regardless of the consequences. So that was something that was very fun to dive into. Um, it draws me in when I can, drama, comedy, whichever one, I think ultimately if there's truth to something, then you want to tap into that. And, you know, it's just, the opportunity to represent more Asian diversity in film and in TV. And, you know, again, kudos to the team. They kept it authentic to want Japanese actors in this of Japanese descent because they wanted to honor the story that way. And I, I bless them for that. That's great. Yeah, that's really amazing. And, and speaking of which, I think you mentioned earlier, but like, you know, Infinite Terror represents like one of the rare, like broad mainstream depictions of the historical Japanese internment during World War II. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, behind the scenes, like your preparation for the role, yep. um, what the environment was like, the set pieces, and the historical context that you were like, yeah, yeah, provided yeah. when you're getting in, do you remember? Yeah, uh, 
I did a lot of research. I did a ton of research. And I'm, I'm generally kind of like a really visual guy. Uh, I love to see things. So I love pictures. I love videos. Mm-hmm. So I kind of tapped into that first. So, you know, going on Wikipedia, going on YouTube, just finding any documentary, anything that I can kind of find that can give me a visceral organic reaction. And then I dove into the books. And the writers were super kind. They actually sent all the cast members a reading list of stuff that they read. Um, that helped them when they were telling the story. And so, you know, Farewell to Manzanar was one of those books. Uh, A lot of think pieces from New York Times. George Takei had a piece in there. And so just diving into that, even the cast members, um, like early on, they told me about this book called No No Boy from John Okada. And that was a great book too that just was able to give me more tangible feeling of the environment. Uh, The set... Uh, shout out to Jonathan McKinstry. He his production design is top notch. He came from season one, coming into season two, and the authenticity that he brought to a lot of the, the set pieces, the barracks, like you can feel it. You can sense the how would I say the 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 big. I don't know, I'm trying to say how how big it is. Like you yeah. know, just the just the dynamic range of what this uh, set piece was, and it's it was great. Like you can you didn't have to act too much just because you're really living in that space. Yeah, and then just from as someone who's watched the series at this point, mm-hmm. just seeing the finished product of the visualization of an internment camp, which in, it, it is a prison. It's a prison right. both in a literal and a figurative sense, and yeah. how they're able to capture every detail from the barracks to just the mess halls and everything. How, like, as an actor, did you feel like that claustrophobic? Do you feel that, that, that historical trauma? I mean, let's just get right into it. Yeah, like, no, I, uh, I, I did this on the very first day of set. Um, we, were in, we were in an indoor studio, and they built a barrack, you know, a couple barracks on the inside of the studio. And I remember just taking 15, 20 minutes just mm-hmm. for myself, just walking through the set before I got called on just to sit, just sit in it. And it's not a one-one. Like, it's no way is it a, a one-one comparison to what any of those, what any of those people felt uh, 70, 80 years ago. And, but to just be there, to live in it, to feel it. Um, and then talking to people like George, who was there, uh, those were, those were things that very much helped create that create that story within me to help portray this as true and as authentic as I could have. Were there any characters and any real life historical figures who kind of, and just get into our second question of like, how do you prepare for your role as yeah. fan? Yeah. Were there any kind of like reference points that you use from real life? I don't have to go as far as George. <laughs> it's so funny, man. Um, I don't have to go as far as him yeah. because he, once I read up on episode five, and I'm not too sure, I'm assuming that, I don't know how much you can spoil in this, but I don't know if I can say that the whole no-no boy thing, but yeah. I'm guessing we can kind of get to that place. Yeah. But, um, you know, with George, his family answered infamously no to questions 27 and 28, and they got sent to Tule Lake. And so with my character, who's very similar in that regard, I really spoke with him, I talked with him about it. And he was between the ages of five to nine at that time. But... I think at that time of age, you're so observant. Yeah. So you're very aware of like kind of what's happening. You're, you don't know how to process it, but you're aware of kind of what's going on. And so I would ask him what he personally observed, what the dynamics were between the relationships of the no-no boys versus the, the, uh, the military people versus the actual Japanese-American uh, citizens who did answer yes, and the dynamics between all those three groups. And so to hear him and, and to talk, talk about that, that personalized my story very easily just because, you know, not to say that, I'm doing this through him, but he gave me the opportunity to see what the world was like at that time. So yeah. that was invaluable. And and George, I mean, as not just as an actor, but as a really as a consultant of the mm-hmm. film, mm-hmm. is no stranger to his involvement and his sort of expression and discussion of this everything from 
you know, the book, uh, they call this enemy mm -hmm. to his work, which I actually interviewed him earlier um, this year with Allegiance. Oh, and, nice. And how nice. was that? It was just, again, you really sense how history and fiction just completely blend together in terms yeah. of, you know, obviously in the theater context, but to see George in that context as well, like playing an older character, despite him being, you know, a child at this time, right. was, it, it was moving, but it also gave a platform for actors like yourself to like mm -hmm. inherit those qualities those revolutionary tendencies as well and so there and that's and just to add on that mm -hmm. like there was this great understanding that we had as we moved along for instance like Derek who plays Chester you know he has a very close tie to relationships with people who lived on Terminal Island who went to the camps as well he his family had a cafe on Terminal Island at the time wow. um, and our first AD he actually his grandparents were um, they were actually held at a camp in Canada, like at a, in the horse stalls before they got sent to the concentration camps. And we filmed at that exact horse, oh we filmed goodness. in those horse stalls, yeah. yeah. And uh, we, you know, the, the AD would tell like, you know, which specific horse stalls they were and like some of the cast members of the crew, they would actually go there just to feel it, you know? And, and it's, it's real. Yeah, it's real, like it's, it's, real. it's real. So, so you know, it's as, as light as we can keep it as a cast, we knew how heavy it, we were bringing the material yeah. to. And the the sense of both an obligation and like I would say a creative responsibility to portray this moment, mm -hmm. this this dubious dark moment in American history with mm -hmm. with light and with dignity mm -hmm. given these characters. And so just getting right back into your character as well, you know, in in the story of uh, Terror Infamy, Ken seems to be continually at odds with other characters in the story, including Amy and Chester, with respect to their means of resistance, yep. passive versus active decision making, that define the course of their collective future. So how did you hone in on that character's, just his motivations, mm -hmm. his activism, and his anger? Like I'm going, I'm going back to this again, just for all the listeners out there, but uh, Christian just nailed it with these questions, man. Just <laughs> nailed it. Thank these you. are such great questions. Um, so the broad strokes that I received early on was Ken was from San Francisco. He comes from an affluent family. So just even that was something enough to work off of. Okay, what was San Francisco like in the 1940s? Uh, they, there, was a, there was a place called Japantown where a lot of Japanese people lived. There, our director of three and four, um, Michael, uh, Michael Lehman, he, was, he lived in San Francisco. So he knew about Japantown. So he was even a reference point that I can talk to about. But I wanted to dive deep into like, Okay, well, what schools did people attend? Like, if, you're in, if you come from an affluent family, what kind of schools would you go to? What type of books would you read? And it's hard to find that stuff back in those times. But mm -hmm. the more that you do that, the more you're, you get closer to the character. And I made the decision that he was very principled because he's educated. He probably knows very much about, very much about values, about rights, about him being a second-generation American and what that means at the time of 1940s and what it means to be an Asian American in 1940s at that time, which is very different than what it's to be an Asian American today. Uh, so I think all of that tied into his principles of, you know, again, he's a little too highly principled at some points in the right. show. It's like almost to a fault, as we may see. Um, but that was something where he chooses that sometimes over Amy. He chooses that sometimes over the betterment of his family or his love. And but that's what's important to him. So those those are the things that I really honed in on to lock in what the motivations were that dictated his character throughout the show. Exactly. And you drew from like a historical context. And I'm just thinking in the timeline here, in the, in the 1940s, that's just shy of 50 years after the, the 1888 Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. So right, if we're mm -hmm. talking about what's latent in history and how those residual both logistical and political machinations were still happening in place, mm -hmm. how that would impact a young man growing up in a largely 
Asian but still segregated part of America and California. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it all culminated in there. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. all it all I mean it's amazing how everything ties in, you know, I think. I just between Man, we go to the Chinese immigration thing. We could talk. That's a, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> whole other podcast. Yeah, no, 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 yeah, we'll save for episode two, yeah. Episode yeah. the next one, the sequel. Yeah. I think you mentioned also Amy, and I think that's a great segue to our to our next question. Was mm-hmm. that you know in totality, even watching the series, Ken is one of the few characters in the series to find and actualize romance, and also to express his sexuality, mm-hmm. even within the context of being in the internment camps. So, right. for you as an actor and as an activist. And as a, as a person, why do you think that was important for you to offer that element of his character within the story? I think story-wise, it's great because it humanizes us. It humanizes mm-hmm. the story of what's happening in the camps. I think anyone who watches it can at least relate to that part of a human um, element. Uh, there were even real stories in the camps at the time where people found love. People ended up getting married in the camps. People ended up getting married outside of the camps. Um, so I think all of those things was honoring the stories that the writers told between Alex, Shannon, Tony, all, and all the other writers across the board. They really wanted to honor certain story elements. But I'd also then add on top of it, as an activist, as an optics point of view, yeah. it's so important, I think, too, to be able to see Asian Americans having romantic, having sexual relationships in mainstream media because 100%. it's so often overlooked or just not as highlighted. And um, so, so I'm very grateful. Oh, my God, I'll tell you a great story. Uh, <laughs> Lily, Lily Maria, who directed episode five, during the scene when, we, when uh, Mickey and I had our scene together, uh, she would t- she would take us aside, you know, like in between takes, and she would just tell us how excited she was because Lily, she's also she's Japanese as well, and her family's also uh, has has relative relations towards the camps, and so to be able to not only tell that story, but for her as a Asian American director, for her seeing all the things that she has seen in the years as an actress, to be able to then direct a scene of two Asians on a mainstream show on AMC to direct that it's it it's. Yeah. It gets chills. Yeah, yeah, you get chills, yeah. man. Like yeah. it's like it's so hard. It's so hard not to think about. Like wow, you don't really see it often. So when you do, you take it with the you take it with the blessing. You take it with, you know, as much grain of salt as you can to not make it heavy handed and to just be there. Sure. But it, but we also know how important it is that a young Asian American viewer might be watching this and thinking, oh yeah, that it's totally okay. Like this does happen. And I can do this too. You know. So. All of that uh, comes with a, a great blessing. Do you feel like it in many ways benefited and enriched the show having the fact, and this seems kind of obvious if I answer my own question, mm-hmm. but like having a multicultural, multi-generational production team, both in directors, the writer's room, the yeah. actors themselves, Absolutely. in terms of the authenticity of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the authenticity is across the board just because the, you know, the showrunners with Alex and Max, they wanted to find directors who very much had somewhat ties or they were diverse like asian americans as well like uh, episode seven was mira and she was a yep. great director as well and so they, they really wanted to tap into that so i'm i'm very appreciative of that of that overall just because it, again it, it adds into diversification adds into representation but just also new voices or, or voices that should be heard more often too just because we have a great there's a great collection just as we said earlier there's enough jobs out there for everybody so. exactly and it's a it's a powerful sentiment and, and i think you know I issue this sense of appreciation that, you know, whenever I, I always watch the like end credits too of everybody to see like nice. who, there's both front facing people like talent like you that are in yep. the camera, but also people in the writer's room, people who are producing it, yep. people who are directing it to know yep. that they are helmed by perspectives that are literally from people who had experience in internment camps or had yep. relatives. It doesn't get more real than that. It does and not. I think that's, there's it power in that. Not. So 
that's a perfect segue to our next question. We're, we're killing it right we're now. We're killing uh, it, yeah. man. Just, it's just perfect like, transitions. Yeah. You just, you narrowed it down. You got it right, man. Thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> for you, you know, experiencing this, this passage and this, this narrative, what were some of the emotional high points that you experienced during the production? You know, I, I was reading the Atlantic's coverage of Allegiance where Takei discussed, you know, how in the set, the texture of the strips of wood that held the tar paper and tats, the crawl space, all those memories came back. The acting wasn't acting. Did you have moments like that? You know, I know you mentioned you kind of being there beforehand and yeah, yeah, taking yeah. it all in. Yeah. But other like high points, happy points that really like give you reinforced value of your time as an actor there? Gosh, that's such a good question. <laughs> Damn. Um, George, I, I go back to George when it comes to emotional high points because hearing it from him, it's, it's different from reading a book. It's different from looking at a, a video. Like you're hearing it from someone who was personally there, who can feel it, who can smell it, who can tell me what he felt. When he tells me the story about when the officers came to his door and banged on his door and mm -hmm. he said it was the loudest bang he's ever heard in his life. You could feel that stuff. And, and to honor that was such a blessing, but to also, I don't know, to, I, I think also the emotional high points were just the, the relations that we created with the cast members because they all in some ways were able to bring in their own stories with it. And then the, the sort of the, the relation that we created from that, the family that we created from that, those I cannot take it away because to me, the journey, the whole journey of itself was an emotional high point for me. Um, so I'm, I, I loved it. I, I loved just collaborating. I think uh, like yeah. going back to Lily, for instance, too, like she was one of the most collaborative directors that I worked with. So we would just workshop like scenes in the middle of it and just talk about it and see what we can do and provide different options. And I, you love that as an actor just because you know, you want gracious directors just as much as uh, gracious scene partners like Mickey and Tommy, you know, the, these guys were great in terms of working with. So I'm, I'm very, very happy that I got to work with some, some great players. And it just, I think just in terms of taking a wider here, you know, a lot of times for your, your, your time working in entertainment for, you mm -hmm. know, at this point, two decades, like how often you get to be a part of an ensemble, primarily Asian American, primarily Japanese American guys. Yep. Is this the first time in your career where you've had this experience? First ever. First, first ever. ever, first ever. Yeah, I, I, uh, wow. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna jump ahead because I see a question yeah. that I want to say. I want to say, but uh, there was this one memorable thing that I, I remember um, my first day of shoot. The first day, I walked into the makeup trailer, and I remember reading about this in interviews with Black Panther. Funny enough, but when I walked into the makeup trailer, first time ever, I just see a row of Asian people sitting in sitting in the seats, and all the people getting their hair done and makeup done, and I'm like. I've never seen this before. <laughs> I've never had this happen. And I remember reading interviews with Black Panther, like cast being like on, in the trailer or on set, like, they would feel this energy because like, they just were not a part of this usually. Yeah. With such a big production, with such great people involved. And so that was something that it was so palpable. And I remember telling Mickey about this on the first day. And she was a little bit surprised too. She was like, oh yeah, I guess, because she was already there for the first two episodes. Mm -hmm. And so they felt that energy early on. But, and so I think to that point, Every recurring player who comes on, every guest player who comes on, every day player who comes on, they bring on a new form of energy. They bring on a new form of like, uh, uh, just wow, bedazzlement in a way. Like they're yeah. very excited to be there. And that feeds off of us, we feed off of them. And so that was something that I very much felt every time. And you know, I would try to pinch myself every now and then yeah. and be like, 
I, you're not going to get a moment like this. Even Tommy told told us, he's like, you got to cherish this. Yeah. Like, cherish this because he's like, you know, he's the type of guy who's worked on a lot of different things. And he said, like, he said that this was a very special production for him because he knew how special it was for us. So to that point, uh, there were a lot of very memorable moments from that. Were there, and I think just from the optics level of just like, and seeing all like, all the, the the heads of black hair like in yeah. the makeup yeah. stand just yeah, kind yeah. of finding like the the joy and thing for me like I want to hone in on that too it's just that you know Terra, Terra Infamy is a very solemn often dire show and a lot of times the the heaviness of it could be overwhelming even for like a viewer like yeah. for me binge watching I'm, yeah. I'm surprised that you could binge watch it man. I watched it that is it yeah. so for our listeners I, I watched the entire series I'd lucky to um in within five days so I watched about two episodes a night yeah. and that's a lot of darkness to kind of yeah. consume especially after midnight so for me as a viewer you know I have one level of perspective but as an actor to kind of be in those trenches literally yeah. Yeah. how did you guys find joy how do you find levity like in terms of like choking around in terms of like playing pranks like right what, right right what's all things you did behind the scenes to really thank like, you well and yeah. honestly i mean thank goodness for our cast because we we are all a family now we we have a we have a group text thread that yeah. we like to go on i mean it's great just because you know it, it is it's like you said it's a heavy show and it's it's there's a lot of elements to it where you have to really tap into you know the dramatic side the heaviness side the horror side but honestly when we're when it's when the tape is not rolling we're having a hoot. Yeah. We're having a hoot. Like we're, you know, we're even in the makeup trailer, we, we're talking in Japanese and we're yeah. having a great time or we would go behind the scenes and uh, just mess with some of the set pieces <laughs> and like, you know, there's, we have photos about it. It's great. Like we definitely find ways to and, you know, it, it's, it starts from the top down, honestly. You always like, the, from, from the cast's top down, like the, the professionalism that they bring, but also the levity that they bring, you know, and that's that's sort of how we all kind of tap into. We stand on the shoulders of great men and women who come before us. So it's like they they absolutely set the tone, and within that we have fun. But when it's time to get ready, when it's time to lock it in, you know, we take our time. We we you know everyone kind of separates for a second to hone into themselves, and then we just dive in. So there there is that professional aspect that we tap into, but. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, you know, there's nights where we go out, we go get drink, we'll get, we go to Izakaya and have yeah. some, have some <laughs> good old food and yeah. get some beers yeah. and, you know, cry about how, how we did because it was so heavy, you yeah. know, but no, but in honesty, it was probably crying with laughter because we yeah. had such a great time doing it, so. I, I love hearing that yeah. too, it just it reinforces that, like, I, and again, given the nature of just your role, but also like this podcast too, is that our goal is to capture cultural authenticity as well, and yeah. like, for you, you know, given that you have a Japanese background, yeah. were there elements of like the culture and tradition that you guys inundated within the production? Not within like the character scenes, but like in terms of like you guys speaking Japanese, any like things you did behind, like elements that you want to like enhance like your time as friends? That's fascinating. Well, I mean, from a, per uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm gonna answer this question correctly, Christian, so tell me if I am. Uh, but in terms of enhancing production, I do remember um, Coco who plays, uh, 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 Asako, who plays yeah. Chester's mom, you know, she was she was someone who, because she speaks Japanese, like she would often help in terms of how to weave some of those storylines or how to weave some of the storyline uh, context of the lines themselves and how they're spoken. And so, and even like uh, uh, Shingo, who plays Henry, you know, he's from Wakayama, and so he has a specific dialect that taps into what what these how these people were speaking at the time wow. and so George would actually then talk to uh, Shingo about how to say things because as George can speak Japanese 
dialect is somewhat different. Right. So he would speak with him about that. So though there were things that we tapped into that made things more authentic, that enhanced the production. And of course, you know, I mean, the, the producers and the writers, like, if they're not Japanese, they're going to be like, okay, well, we trust you. <laughs> and we had a great translator too. Like, Emmy, like, she was there too to translate. So we had all the right people involved, but, you know, even the cast members as well, like, we would be like, hey, we can say this or we can say it this way. And if it makes sense, then let's go with that. So there, there was that collaborative aspect that every time it happened, you know, that's the stuff that you love. Like, you want it to be this feeling of not just one person telling everybody to do it this way, but mm -hmm. we have this feeling of it's a team. It takes a village. Like, it's, it's a cliche, but it's the most honest cliche there is. You answered that perfectly. And I think that it was derived from me, and we're going on the opposite side of the creative pool here, but, like, uh, Netflix is Terror House. Uh, uh, yeah. Terrace House, sorry. Not, yeah, not Terror House. That, that, that's the spin-off. That's the spin-off. That's, spin that's, yeah, yeah. that's the Terror and the Terrace House mixed together. That's the, uh, the combination. Oh, my God. Oh my gosh. Um, but how, like, I'm always fascinated. And for our, our, our Japanese-speaking listeners as well, just yeah. in terms of like reading into like the dialectal specifics of it, and mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. does that in many ways enhance you know? Because a lot of the film is a lot of the series is spoken in Japanese too. Yes. And, I, and I wonder sometimes as someone who's Chinese and speaks Japanese, like right. what's going on here on the dialectal level that like yeah yeah yeah. No, I, I I think about that every time I watch any any foreign film because. You know, I, I think it's fascinating where if, if it was directly translated into English and you were saying those lines and like it may not work, but yeah. it's because it's being said in that language. That's what that's what we feel is very authentic. That's what we feel like works. So, shoot, what was the question? That was <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about uh, Terror House <laughs> and <laughs> its right. debut uh, next year. Starring <laughs> it's right. there's, a, there's a spirit that's haunting these people who are trying to date and find love. Yeah. Talk about a crossover. Let's talk about a crossover. Let's man. make sure. That's a move. That's a move. AMC, if you're listening. Yeah. Uh, Netflix, if you're listening. We got a pitch idea for you. <laughs> it's like when, when Ten Yun singles and a Yure. And a Yure. And a Yure kicks in. Who's going to get voted off the oh, island? Who's or who's, who's going to get booed off the island? You know, no pun intended there. Yeah. Oh my god. Again, no mistakes, only lessons. No, exactly. Um, exactly. Exactly. In a, in a, in a weirdly faint transition, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what did you feel like was the benefit of having this story being told in an anthology TV series mm -hmm. as opposed to like a film or like a mini series or like even like a short video? What I think that taps back into the horror elements where I think they do a great job of letting things build up, letting things build up for that for that horror element. Um, I, I think the internment stuff is fantastic. I think you could even have a whole another series in and of itself just on internment camps, but they totally. they they create that setting here, mixing in with the horror stuff. So I think that's that's what makes it really fun for an antho uh, anthology forum format. But beyond that, I mean, like I think I, I think you can always make. I mean, Japanese folklore and horror has been. Film based so often in the 90s and the early 2000s, yeah. and they did such a great job of it. So I think we could always tap back into it. But I think for a show like this, coming off of season one, it was it was a great lead up. I mean, we had big shoes to fill at the end of the day with season right. one. But within that, it's like between American Horror Story out there, like those types of films that create these anthologies. It's great for the horror format. But I think about shows like Chernobyl and When They See Us, oh, man. and yeah. just to have that type of historical context type shows, it's great to live in that genre as well as an anthology. It's really having a moment. It really I is. Like it really this is. Past, like, yeah. I would say the past two, two years has really demonstrated that there is definitely like an audience for that and yeah. people who want real life stories with I love, I mean I think I love I love the limited series and I and I again I love mashup genres these days and they're doing such a great job of it with with the uh uh topical things that are kind of even happening and I know 
certainly with things that are happening in America right now, it's not too hard to draw the line in terms of you know camps and, and detaining people. Right. But then even with uh, uh, the the other shows that are out there like right now, I, I love that we're tapping into certain things that are topical that are relevant. And we get to have an opportunity to have create conversation within that while even adding the conversation of Asian Americans in, in representation. And that's where I, I get the goosebumps right now because, you know, it's been touched about lately throughout our interview, but like, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the obvious contemporary analogs between mm-hmm. what is covered in Terra Infamy mm-hmm. and what's happening on our border right now. Right. And I think there's one scene thing in the third episode where like Lewis is at the nursery and the soldiers are rounding up. Yeah. Literally children, I think the line was like, even one drop of Japanese blood, right. and they have to go. And I right. think, you know, for you, like, what are your thoughts on, like, the, the show's role as a, a political vehicle, as a way to express, you know, these ideas and these fears? It's such a fine line that we as artists kind of go to. And, and I think, especially living in a culture now where there is such a big faction of groups of people that don't want politics in their art. Right. And to me, I find that difficult because... You know, everything we do is connected. Everything we do. And so how can art imitate life if we are not actually imitating life then? How are we not talking about the things that are happening in life if we are not depicting it through story, through storytelling? And storytelling has been there from aeons, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of how we tell human emotions as to, and, and, and interpret and understand why people do what they do. And so, you know, something like this, something with the infamy, it, comes, it came from fear. It came, everything came from fear. And so from there, how do we then tell that story and not make it heavy handed because we're not trying to tell a quote unquote political show because that's not what it is. We're just trying to tell a story here of what happened in America, but also mixing it with fictional elements of horror. But but again, those are things that when a, a, a viewer who is biased or not biased, it's like if you are well enough to know the news or what's kind of going on, you're going to have a visceral reaction. You're going to have something about it. Whether you hate it or you love it, well, I'm sorry, that's, that's doing the right job as an artist. Like we're doing something right. If you don't like it, I'm sorry that you don't like it, but I would hope that you're being aware as to why you don't like it. Exactly. So that's, that, those, those are the things that ultimately we want to do as artists. And, and I, I try not to get too pretentious about it because, you know, as artists, we can certainly draw that line for ourselves too. But you know, I'm grateful that we get to tell these stories. These are the type of stories that I want to tell. If I, if I can't have a message in something that I'm doing, then it's like, well, shoot, why am I doing it? Exactly. And I think what, what you touch upon is just this, this sense of, like, blurring between the world that we have, you know, as creatives mm-hmm. in terms of, like, is there intrinsically, like, an ethical responsibility, an obligation right. to, like, right. if you had an opportunity to do any role that's on your slate right now as an actor, like, jumping on this project for obvious reasons because of the power of inclusion, but the power right. of a message and that's what's honing here too and I think back to like drawing from like real life contemporary stuff uh, the New York Times has, has a podcast called Daily where a border patrol agent who has a Mexican background talks about how people call wow. him a Goosebumps. race trader Goosebumps. and me thinking about a lot of times in our show when Japanese Americans who want to listen in, into the army mm-hmm. in terms of their rejection they face racially or even through um, through you know the other people's stories of going going overseas and fighting on behalf of America yep. and still feeling like they're still rejected and, and yep. dejected from society. It's just, mm-hmm. it's challenging. I mean, and that's, it goes back into that, that loyalty questionnaire where there's a very strong faction of people that didn't believe that they should answer yes to questions where they were being told that they have a loyalty towards Japan and they have to forswear and then swear their loyalty towards America, which by default says that you have loyalty towards a country that you were never even born in or a part of. Yeah. But then there's another group of people that 
very much believed in, no, we have to fight for, you know, we have to fight for America. We have to prove our loyalty to them and we can do that. And that is so intrinsic to Japanese American culture and somewhat Asian American culture too of just uh, assimilation, of just trying to fit in. That is something that's very truly Asian American in a lot of ways too. And so I think there is something that we as Asians can tap into when you watch that type of story and, and how that has through the generations affected us, yeah. right? And how we have now changed. And so there's that, that type of history and it's fascinating to me because mm-hmm. history was something that I never really cared for back <laughs> in the day. It's, man, it's really, yeah. fa- it's so funny. <laughs> history back in high school, I did not care yeah. at all. I was sleeping in class, but now I love history. I would go to, like, uh, I went to Austin recently and I went to the Capitol over there and uh, just being in this big room where they have the auditorium where they have all the politicians sit around and you can see all the, the portraits of all the past like senators and people who live there, people who are, uh, uh, you know, working there. You could feel like energies and I don't think I could have appreciated that. And Maybe that just comes with compassion, empathy as you get older. And right. That maybe that's all we really need in life too is to understand more things and that's something that this show does. And it's, it's done and it will continue to do and the, the hope again is that we see and, I, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this too but just like the impact of Going back to August 2018 and, you know, the beginning of the crazy rich Asians sort yeah. of like, we're, we're seeing it as, as like a title, and I want to say a title, maybe that's problematic, but just like the sense of like momentum. Yeah. We're seeing stuff get greenlit, get encouraged and get empowered. Yep. And I think, you know, riding the vessel of being an actor, like riding this wave into it and how much power that that draws from. And I think, mm-hmm. if anything, just to start conversations, honest conversations with if anything with people who aren't Asian American, to be yep. like, hey... Do you know about what was happening in right. America in the right. 1940s? Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, and, th- and that ties into even just race relations now. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like how, how we view everything from the artistic and entertainment side, but also just from the real world side of things. And there are certain things that, like there are people who, you can see it in forums, you can see it, you know, people tweeting about it. They're asking like, did this actually happen? Like did, right. did they put these people in these camps? And it's great that we can create that awareness, but it's also so sad that like we're not teaching early on of you know the atrocities and the things that we that America likes to kind of turn a blind eye towards. Right. Um, but it is one of those sins, just as much as like slavery was a sin, like this was a sin. Like we've done bad things, and it's it's on us to be compassionate, empathetic, and accountable in terms of what we have done as a country to each other. More than just art. More than just art. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. As there have been as done so far, mm-hmm. is that. What other stories, in your opinion, from the canon of Asian American history mm. do you want to see be a part of and what do you want to see be presented in, in yeah. the next? Well, just even adding on what we were talking about earlier, I mean, again, if, if to create something that's even just about the camps, like even a bigger story about the camps too would be fantastic. They tap into the 442 infantry later on, and that's, yeah. I love that story. The most coveted, most decorated, you know, American military group in World War II, which was consisted mainly of Japanese Americans at the time, because they were the people who answered yes to the loyalty questionnaire, and they wanted to prove their loyalty, and look what they did. Yeah. They proved it beyond, beyond measure. And so that's a great story there. Um, like you said too, Chinese immigration, like that, that law and the, what was going on at that time, I think that's an amazing thing, but I also love the history that we're telling right now. Yeah. Like we're, we're literally in a defining point in our lives right now to determine what, how we will view race, how, how race will kind of push forward among all of us, between Asian Americans, between, between African American, between black, between brown, between all of it. Yeah. And I think that's 
something that I'm very excited about because, you know, you look at someone like Andrew Yang, for instance, you right. know, first presidential candidate who's made it this far, and I guarantee there's a great story behind him as well. And so it's, he won't be far along where there's a story being told for him too. Definitely. So between that, between how right now we are in a very interesting area where like, like you say with Crazy Rich Asians, there was this great momentous splash, but then I don't want that to just kind of yeah. simmer down. I want there to be that escalation up. But we have to continually tell stories not only of the past, but human stories that are happening right now. Because one thing, one of the biggest gripes that I have mm -hmm. about certain shows sometimes is they'll like they'll say so and so and so and oh, but you know, but that Chinese guy, and they'll be like, no, no, Christian, he's Japanese, yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's kind of being overly political to be like politically correct, and right. I understand why you do that, but if you think about entertainment back in the day it's like sure when we started early on you know from the talkies it's like obviously it was predominantly white caucasian just because those were the people who were running the industry right but we never questioned it when we grew up we were just like oh that's that's just what it is so why do we have to then necessarily do that for asians you know aside from yes being politically correct sort so that we have awareness and understanding and knowledge but in the end, we're telling human stories. Exactly. In the end, we all love, just like Amy and Ken have their, you know, their scene of romance, we all have that. So it doesn't have to be through the lens of, of race or politics or anything like that. It's just we're human. And if we just continuously do that, people won't question, wait, so what race is, what ethnicity is Christian? Uh, what am I, what's Chris? You know, they won't, they don't have to ask that so much because we're all just portraying the things that are human. Right. And if it is indeed part of the story, if indeed culture and race is part of the story, then yes, then you, you make that as an element that helps, you know, push the story along. But it doesn't have to be an excuse as to why this person does X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and I think it speaks to just this idea of, like, universalizing, like, our experiences as people. Yes. And to yes. just, like, you know, it won't happen tomorrow. It won't happen next week or next year. But, like, the goal is, like, as long as we're here working in capacity entertainment, that we're issuing that agenda. Or at least putting that energy out into the ethos. Mm -hmm. That somehow mm -hmm. it's going to approach a time where, like, we won't have to worry. And I think, you know... I'm of the mind as an idealist to believe it will happen sooner than later. Agreed. But again, it, it, it takes moments like this that really allow us to take a step back and be like, hey, here's a story. It's like, do people know Asian Americans have been in America for hundreds of years? Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fascinating because you know you can you really can look at the the business too as to how they've in, slowly but surely incrementally have added, you know, diversification, certain things, but it's still very slow because right now, you know, I, I love the push that we get to see for black culture, African-Americans, we get to see, you know, Black Panther that's come out and when they see us and like so many great stories that are coming out and I love it, I love it so much, but at the same time, I would hope that that doesn't hinder other stories that would be that would be great to tell as well because I don't want the feeling of well as long as we're giving as long as we're giving this side some love here then we don't have to worry about the other side or right. you know things like that I don't I wouldn't want to play that political game ultimately let's just keep telling human stories across the board exactly and it's it's a weird POV to be in that is particularly endemic to like POC communities mm -hmm. too because you mm -hmm. know we're still in a largely male and pales based industry right. and how to like circumvent that or at least hopefully effectively transcend it right it can be a point where we can have honest conversations and make honest art exactly so exactly speaking of honest art mm -hmm. and just in closing this too what are you working on next what's in the pipeline uh just what's uh that? yeah i've got, I got a couple things that i'm working on right now but i'm actually uh directing my first feature fairly soon yeah yeah I'm working on yeah 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 so we're in the weeds for that right now but uh, it actually has to deal with kind of a topical circumstance but also within the lens of 
how how we view race, sex, uh, sexism, racism, classism now versus how we viewed it just as early as 10, 20 years ago. And the lens is pretty different in some ways too, yeah. just because of certain things that have happened. Um, but it's it's within that, but also kind of telling this this timely topical tale within a group of uh, 20, 30 some year olds. It's somewhat semi-autobiographical just because I grew up in a, actually I grew up in a predominantly like white neighborhood. And so a lot of my core friends were actually, you know, they're Jewish, they're white, um, Indian. And then so when you, when I, you know, 20 some years later after we grow up, how does, how does your lens change and how does your friendship change when we view the world differently, the view, the world views us differently. Wow. Like and that. so how do you, you know what I mean? Like, cause what, when we were 15, 16 years old, we could probably get away with certain things, like saying certain things and like, you know, your white friends can say certain things. You'd be like, ah, yeah, whatever, you know, it's totally fine. But now can you, can you do those things? Can you say those things? And yeah. it's just because you know somebody, can you say those things? So there is that type of uh, conversation that I love to bring up and just bringing it back to telling stories with messages and I can't help it, but I love to be able to <laughs> it's like, <innate. laughs> it's, yeah, it's innate in me. Like I, I, I want to be able to, tell certain stories that, that can carry some sort of themes that you would take along with you because that's what movies have done for me in my whole life. I, I love movies that just take me away that, that for that after a movie, I'm just walking in silence and just thinking about it and thinking about how it affected me and thinking about, you know, what is that, what is this movie gonna now do for me? How does it change the world for me? Because it's done that so often in my life. Movie, movies and film and TV have been such great teachers for me just as much as my collaborators have been. So. I want to be able to honor that with stories that I can tell for other people. It's amazing, Chris, and yeah. you'll definitely keep our, our viewership in mind when, when, yep. when it comes out, when it, when it gets in production, and we'll definitely be keeping top of that as well. Um, and just one against, I, I just want to offer my deepest gratitude and appreciation for Chris to come out today and, and talking with you. us here at Hyphen. Um, you get questions like yeah. this, you ask me any time, man. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for I it. I have 20 more, but I want to keep it, you know, <laughs> relative economic. But, um, fair enough, fair enough. We'll, for, we'll save it for the terror house. For the terror house. <laughs> Man, that, talk about our Freudian slip there yeah. um, for a readership once again. Funny, I don't, I don't watch Terrace House enough, but I know so much about it because all my friends do talk. A lot of my friends talk about it, and I, I can understand how how great it can be because hearing the concept, I'm like, oh yeah, that's such a, it's it's like it's such a great mix of what is it, uh, real world and and, uh, and like and like just like but very heartfelt like Japanese yeah. like Asian uh, <laughs> love, you know what I mean, like. But it's such, like, the pacing of it actually reminds me a lot of Terror Infamy because it's like a slow burn. Mm. Like, you're building up. It takes you, like, 26 episodes to get them to hold hands. No <laughs> There's always this sense of, like, tension because no one really communicates that well. Right, 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 right. Well, they're they're also fearful. Yeah. It's like, I like you, but I can't say it, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move maybe an inch closer to you, you know, so. just an edge. Because <laughs> what I'm saying is that we basically have already workshop the Terror House. Exactly. It, it is... Perfectly complimentary in terms of tone, pacing, style. We've worked this out. We've worked the pitch out already in this podcast. Yeah. We worked it out. Yeah. We figured it out already. It's Coming great. soon to a series near you. Um, <laughs> you guys can catch Chris on the Terror Infamy on AMC. It's still going in full swing. Be sure to check it out and, and support it. And just, again, share us your thoughts and your feedback. And once again, yeah. Chris, thank you so much for your time, Thank you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you next time.